0: You do not speak with anybody other than the next of kin. No friend, no neighbor, or mistress. Avoid physical contact. In case you feel like offering a hug or something,
1: don't. I'm not going to be offering any hugs, sir.
0: Hi, I'm Dave Campbell, and you're listening to Longest War.
1: for joining us on Longest War. On this episode, we have former Army officer Dave Campbell. All right, Dave, so you are a you retired after 22 years of service as a Lieutenant Colonel in the Army? Uh yes. What year did you join?
0: I enlisted in January of 91 for the opening of Desert Storm.
1: I was 6, just so you know. <laughs>
0: I, was, I was 25.
1: <laughs> oh, so you you were a little later enlisting. Yes. Desert Storm kind of was the catalyst for you to enlist?
0: I was going to college at the time, and the school went on strike, and I was kind of waffing around that semester and saw a commercial for Go Army Reserve, you know, be all you can be kind of thing. Went in and talked to the uh, recruiter and the MEPS, and um, the MEPS had it set up where the, the active duty computer was in between the Reserve and National Guard computer, so the guy at the active duty computer getting all the cool stuff. Tanker, airborne, all that stuff. And the at the time in Philadelphia the reserves was all medical support or admin support. So they're offering me like clerk, clerk to supply clerk. Right. Medical clerk. It's like if I'm joining, I want to do something
1: on that on. computer. Right. What college were you going to?
0: Temple University
1: in Philly. Why were they on strike? What is it what was does it a, mean for a college to go on strike? The professors wanted more money or more. Oh, this so it was a faculty strike. Yeah. Okay, not a student strike. No, no, no. Okay. Yeah. Did you get your money back for that semester? No. <laughs> no? Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, they,
0: they they prorated, and I finished the semester with as a
1: full-time student, but
0: the, the last one of the classes was like a seven-week crash course and cut the top of your head off and stuff a semester worth and
1: move on. So you finished that before you went to basic? Yep. Yeah. So what job did you get at MEPS? Picked 19 Delta, Cav Scout. Righteous. So those was 91 to... Did you, go, did you go to boot camp in 91 or was that 92?
0: No, I went to boot, boot camp January. So the my first night in basic was the opening of the air war.
1: And were you Benning or Knox? But Knox at the time. Now it's Benning. Okay, I went to Knox as well. So you remember Agony and Misery? and no. God. Don't forget heartbreak. Don't forget heartbreak. So <laughs> I found out, you know, heartbreak wasn't always there. I interviewed a Korean War vet that went there to Knox. And he said it was just agony and misery. I guess they hadn't uh, paved heartbreak quite yet. So they added that in later for us. Oh, great. That but heartbreak, that's you why know, so I told him. I was like, well, then you missed out on the experience because heartbreak was the killer. Like that was yeah. the one after. What was that? So that was a 25-mile march. And that was like it started at mile 23 or something like that. <laughs> it was, it's like, you're almost there, but we're going to break you. We're going to break you. And then, so the funniest thing, I'm watching, and the drill sergeants this whole time, they are, like, they don't look like they've been breaking a sweat. Or it's, no, it wasn't 24, it was 12 miles. 12 miles is what it was. And it's like, we get to mile, yeah, it starts at like 10 and a half miles, starts heartbreak, and these guys, they're not breaking a sweat. And when we get to, for us, when we got to the top, they had like these like tiki torches lit, and the company commander was there with this uh, battalion sergeant major, he gave his big speech about, all right, boys, you're men now. And all this stuff and i reached over and i just kind of nudged the drill sergeant's rucksack and he just had a pillow in it that was all that's why he was smoking us because we've got 90 pounds of shit and he's got a, a you know an eight ounce pillow in there
0: eight ounce wow he's wearing covering a heavy pillow
1: yeah it was it was a good goose down oh, oh yeah, yeah it was a yeah, decent size but i was i was less angry than i was impressed i was like wow these guys really do think yeah so you did your full, you did basic, nine weeks of basic, and then you go right in. It was like OSIT, right? Oh, you go right yeah, in. So
0: it was 14, 15 weeks. So second day in basic training, they come in and say, hey, we've cut two weeks of training off scouts because projections are we're going to need you. At that time, they thought Desert Storm was going to be a much longer, drawn-out affair. Sure. So that that was the, more, the second morning after the, the, the first morning of, yeah. you know, You know, the drill sergeant's giving you coffee, foot massages, bonbons, in bed. (laughs) Got through training. Desert Storm ends. Pretty much my entire graduating class, except for a couple of kids that had um, guaranteed assignments, stayed at Fort Knox. It was basically we moved from one barracks in mass to the other barracks, probably 45 of us into three troops. Just done.
1: How many strip clubs do they have in Knox Because I remember when I was there at basic in 04, there was like the one that was called Thoroughbreds, and then there was like seven different ones. There was like Thoroughbreds 2, Thoroughbreds 3. It's like every gate had its own strip club outside.
0: I know there was, well, one of my roommates, he dated a stripper, and I was always the designated driver because I had a car and I was older, and I wasn't going to be stupid about, right. you know, wasn't thing. I know I dropped him off at more than... Five or six. Because sure. Because of the way they run their contracts, going different clubs for the... Sure. Whatever. And I'm like, like you really need to get a new girlfriend. Because <laughs> this is annoying to drop you off at all these
1: places. Right. But there's not like... That's what? Elizabethtown? Yeah. There's not a lot to do there.
0: No. There's a Walmart. Kind of... Walmart strip clubs. Tattoos. Pawn shops. Pawn shops and fast food.
1: That's it. That's the extent. So there's a lot of fights. There's a lot of DUIs. There's a lot of...
0: <laughs> I, I would think so i mean we had uh i
1: don't know as a as a private you just you know did what the you
0: know first sergeant said and i was in the op four so we were always in the woods which is good for my bank account good for me not getting in trouble some of the guys i went to basic with ended up in some of the other units on post they tended to be doing a lot more um volunteer beautification work for the first sergeant because
1: calls yeah
0: because they Gotten enough trouble but not enough to get the article 15. Yes. Right. Are you going to volunteer to clean up my area?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Volunteered. Yes. So for our listeners that are unaware, a cav scout is basically infantry. You just get to ride around in vehicles a little more often.
0: After my year at Fort Knox as a as a op 4 doing vismodded Sheridan's. When I got to Germany, I was a uh, Humvee scout. So our job in Germany was battlefield surveillance away the eyes of the enemy be the eyes of of the commander we're attached to of the battalion commander brigade commander the infantry tended to have heavier weapons at disposal and traveled in bigger units in germany we were uh, two section humvees three guys per humvee uh scout team was two guys with the humvee back a couple hundred meters with a 50 or a mark 19 our load got weighed once I weighed 160 pounds at the time in Germany. My full combat load was 120 pounds.
1: Nice. Oh, yeah. It's cakewalk, right? So it's a lot of overwatch, a lot yeah. of reporting back. Yep. Just a lot of... You have to be very observant.
0: A, lo- a lot of not sleeping and moving when nobody else would be moving. Right. A lot of hiding in the places where nobody would think to look.
1: And you got to clear out distractions. You got to be able to focus poke nah. the guy
0: next to you because you're you're only a two-man team and once you're in place you don't want to go back to the humvee for anything because you don't want to give up somebody else on the other side who's supposed to be doing the same job seeing you going oh
1: man right <laughs> so you got uh, we had two canteens one was for going in the other one was for going out is that how you guys said you'd piss in one you drink out of the other
0: <laughs> we we know we, we use the the roll two feet to the left
1: Ah, okay. Yeah,
0: we wanted as much water to drink as possible. There
1: you go. Cool. That's key. If you stay hydrated, your piss doesn't smell for five miles, so they (laughs) can't smell you. Yeah, there you go. So how long were you enlisted for?
0: About three years, three and a half years, because I got uh, selected for ROTC to go back. So they released me about five months early to get back through for the uh, start the fall semester.
1: Did you go back to Temple? Yes. And what was your degree in?
0: Undergrads in history.
1: Oh, Cool. So, you do ROTC. What was the difference between like OBC and basic training for you?
0: OBC, you're treated as an adult. You're given a lot more freedom. I was married at the time, and I, luckily, Fort Yusuf was going to be my first assignment anyway. So, we were able to move right into post housing. Most of the, there were 64 of us in my OBC class, four civilians, and then 60 military. I think we had four three or four foreign nationals
1: what were the civilians doing in it there
0: was a program in the department of defense where uh, civilians in certain fields have to go through military training uh, a lot of there's some gray suitors that run in the logistics field gotcha so they wanted to them to see what the green side is learning so when we start doing things together they understand why we're going no we don't want
1: right they have a little bit of combat logistical sort of experience
0: you know no we we want bullets before we get toilet paper
1: right (laughs) right totally that makes total sense us it does what were the cadre at obc was it officers or did you have like senior enlisted
0: we had a senior enlisted uh e7 and then a captain and then uh each class that was our our cadre and then they had a um I think it was a hotel company, company commander, who was, a, who was a captain who oversaw all the OBCs and took care of the, the administrative side of the school. You know, any promotions, if there was a pay problem, a couple guys ended up in trouble, had to go uh, sure. have a discussion about yeah.
1: stupidity. You know. <laughs> but there was no round brown drill sergeants or anything?
0: The only time we really dealt with drill sergeants was uh, a little bit of weapons qual because they were brought them in for, for some of the students who were having trouble
1: or but they still treated you differently than they would. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It was
0: just, Hey, I'm drill sergeant. So-and-so. Okay. Let, let,
1: this is how you shoot,
0: or this is how you land that
1: probably a more effective way to train somebody
0: <laughs> different training technique. I appreciate what they did in basic training because when you went through it, you know, you had the knucklehead that was always getting it wrong. Yeah, that's true. And you had the guy at the other end going, well, why are you yelling at me? What about knucklehead?
1: Right. A lot of group punishment. Yes. Yes. That was the the least fun part, probably. I don't even know the guy. Why am I doing pushups? Right. He's not
0: even in my section, my squad, my platoon. Why am I doing pushups again? Because he's in your troop.
1: Yeah. You've got to learn from his mistake. What I would love, my favorite was when your guy would screw up and... We would all have to push except for him. They'd make him stand off to the side and watch us, and it just sowed hatred for that guy. But he would fall in line after that because that's, that's a way to single somebody out for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's, it's, yeah. It gets our attention quickly when, sure when 100, 100 guys get...
1: When everyone's salty at you for, for a something of you screwed up. Yeah. So, Cav Scout, did you want to be a Cav Scout officer? Or?
0: Since I was a little bit older, I was, when I went back to ROTC... Pedro was like, oh, go tanker, because you've already been a scout, or go infantry, because you've already been in the environment. I was like, I was going to be just under 31 at commissioning, and I saw, I, a, I said, no, I'm not.
1: I don't want to have a broken body when I'm 40.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I can ride to work as a ta- as a as a trans guy. So I put transportation down as my first, first uh, I think armor was my third. Uh, I can't remember what my second one was, because it's the way they make you pick. You have to put them in order. Yeah, and then you do your next three and then your bottom six.
1: And you got your top choice, which is logistics. Choice. Right. And where were you at? You were at Eustis, you said?
0: OBC at Fort Eustis and first assignment, Fort Eustis.
1: That's a home of trans, right?
0: Yeah. Well, now it's Fort Lee. They moved all the
1: logistics to Fort
0: Lee for capping. They still use the schoolhouse down at Fort uh, Eustis for some stuff, but uh, a lot of it's moved, you know, base consolidations and things.
1: Aside from being an officer in that environment, how did you like being stationed at Eustace with a family as opposed to being at Knox?
0: Eustace had a lot more stuff going on because you're right near Williamsburg and you had Norfolk there. So there was a lot more to do. Post at Fort Knox, I never really dealt with the family housing because I was single dead, and, you know, First Sergeant said it was off limits to go over there unless you were invited. Right. Wasn't going over there. Right? <laughs> most of the troops i was stationed with were 18 19 20 years old so they were main, mainly single also and barracks so, rats yeah there were a couple of those i <laughs> never understood them but
1: so your first assignment at Eustis, you were a lieutenant at the time so you went to be a platoon leader somewhere
0: platoon leader in the 551st trans which was a, one of the one of the bigger trans companies at the time that's before they made the, the like the heck companies that are 200 plus soldiers
1: what kind of vehicles were you operating? We were
0: cargo transfer. So I had um, my platoon, I had 915s, 5 tons, heavy wretches, 10Ks, 4Ks, Humvees. And then I had hydraulic crane operators for
1: big ships. So basically everything with wheels for the most part.
0: Anything that could move something around a port or an airfield was pretty much somewhere in the, in the company. In so the that, that's a
1: big property book. Expensive yeah. property book.
0: Very, especially when you have the guy that you're, He's you like, no, you, you can't operate that because you bumped into the Humvee last week and now we're working on a ship. No, we right. don't want to put a hole in the side of the ship. That's considered bad. Yes. The Navy gets cranky, especially when it sinks. They get grumpy.
1: I think a lot of civilians don't realize that in the Army, I don't know how the Marines do it, but in the Army to operate a vehicle, you have to have a license for that specific vehicle. Yes. You can't just, if you have a Humvee license, you can't just jump in a five ton or a deuce and a half and drive that way. You've got to be licensed on every single vehicle. I remember when I got to Afghanistan, you know, the Gators, it's like the little, I was driving a Gator around and Sergeant Major stopped and asked me to see my military license and I didn't have Gator on it. I had five ton, but I didn't have Gator. (laughs) Tore into my ass for not having a Gator qualification on my license.
0: Yep, we had the, um, our guys had to be generator operator qualified. And if they're working on the the tent heaters, that was a different, it had to be annotated that they, they could do that. So it was like pretty important as a platoon leader to know where everybody is. And when a class opened up for chainsaw, we're sending five. Hey, sir, we don't have a chainsaw. (laughs)
1: Doesn't matter. We will at some point. (laughs) We
0: might, we don't know.
1: (laughs) Right. Just, just send Bob again. Just
0: keep sending him to everything.
1: Yeah, you have this one master guy that knows how to operate all the equipment in case you get it one day. Yeah, and hide them. Yeah, that's a smart move. So what was your first company command?
0: First company command, I was at Fort Leonard Wood in an AIT company. Oof.
1: I went to AIT at Leonard Wood. It's yeah. A miserable place in June.
0: Yes, it was. August was worse.
1: Yeah. But my
0: company commander had an unforeseen reason for a, a relief for cause. So I became a company commander as a, a first lieutenant for... 75 or 80 days while they the Army tried to pull a captain out of their butt. What was he relieved for? A
1: DUI. Ah, ooh. Yeah, that's a no-go for an officer. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. yeah. So first lieutenant as a company commander. That looks mm-hmm. good on your... Um, it, was, it
0: was interesting.
1: What was it? The, OER. Not, not, yeah, OER. Yeah, OER. I was thinking 2ER. Yeah, yeah that was, so that looks good for you.
0: Well, what it got me was on my lieutenant one because it wasn't 90 days. So it was considered an additional duty for... 80 or 75
1: days so if they'd had you for an extra two weeks (laughs) (laughs) then it would have been rated time right
0: but the the uh there was a graduating class of the advanced course for trans guys and they just diverted a captain from wherever he was going to take over that an unscheduled company command for him which was a bonus because he didn't have to then go through the competition process at um most officers captains the uh, you, when you get to a new battalion brigade, you become an assistant three or an assistant something waiting for a company command to open up. Right. So he was in a position where they just said, hey, you're the commander out here now. I mean, I'm sure there was some thought process at sure. HRC level or, or, you know, they asked the cadre at the advanced course, hey, we got, we need somebody with these skills. And he came in, he was, uh, he had been prior service in uh, Mortarman, Light Mortarman. So he had been in Desert Storm as a as a Mortarman infantry.
1: So did you move back to being the XO?
0: Normally they would have moved me, but because there was only three slots available, they moved me back to his XO because I had just been moved into the company before the company commander got relieved. So, they'd...
1: so it was really no big deal. I mean, there wasn't any kind of... No, there was no animosity. When you were the CO, you had a second lieutenant as the XO. No. I was also the XO. You were the XO and the CS. Yes. Did you have a good first sergeant?
0: I didn't have a first sergeant. You did not have a first sergeant. He went to some some kind of training and came back and dropped his retirement paperwork unscheduled. And the senior drill sergeant became the acting first sergeant. It made meetings easy. There was only two of us. Yeah, that's true. But it also made it really difficult because we had to kind of look at things problems from different perspectives. Okay. XO, you're worried about bed sheets, a company commander. You're worried about getting all the, the troopies out to the training site, right? Which one do we win? Where do we change the schedule?
1: Where were you at during the training cycle? Was this like right at the beginning of a new class of uh, AIT kids coming in?
0: We always had three classes. So we always had a new class, a middle class and an end class. So I had all three in the cycle in the pipeline.
1: So that's a lot to handle for one officer trying to do all the admin, all the logistics for...
0: I got lucky. um,
1: You had some clerks, I imagine. One. One clerk. You have a supply sergeant? One and a half. One and a half.
0: (laughs) Because we got a brand new supply private. Uh, E2
1: came in sometime during that time period also. Which is basically like nothing because he doesn't know anything yet.
0: <laughs> well, he was good at counting sheets and, <laughs> and took some of the work off of the supply sergeant for doing some of the, you know, running around, you know, even in AIT world, kids break stuff in the barracks. Oh, sure. Well, instead of having the supply sergeant have to go over and do it, she would just send him over to see the drill sergeant. Drill sergeant would take him and then he'd go run around post looking for the, you know, the, the
1: r new, you know, guy. Sure. You know, fix this, change the light bulbs.
0: So it worked out for us.
1: So was it easier for you when you got your first actual, like, captain command? Yes, because
0: I had already kind of seen how, how they interplay between the different, different sub-components. You can read about it in a book. Sure. Or see it as the guy sitting at the desk and go, oh, now I see why, why they were doing this. Were you still in TRADOC? For my first company command, my For your first
1: second, like your your no, first real company command, I guess I was
0: actually AGR by then. So I was in Butler, Pennsylvania, in a uh, transportation group. I was the HHC commander.
1: So you're in the Guard, but you're full time reserve reserves full time. You're full time, right? Are, are all the company commanders full time in the reserves? No, very few of them. In my
0: case, the previous company commander, I had. He'd been commander for, for so long, the group commander said, hey, we got to move you out. And he had some um, civilian job issues coming up. So he took advantage of that, that situation. And the person that they wanted advertised it in the reserves looking for somebody to take it. They had no takers. So the group commander, the 06, full bird colonel, said, all right, Dave, you're commander. And we'll work it out somehow. So I ended up being the, the on-call commander for about a year. And that got rated time for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like,
1: okay, good. We got this one done. Was there anybody else that was active within the unit? Did you have a supply or any sort of admin person that was, Yeah, or were we you had, the only one?
0: No, we had a supply person was full-time. Uh, two other people in the S3 were full-time. Two people in the S4 were full-time. Then we had some uh, GS full-time civilian employees. So it was a full-up.
1: So you weren't just going to a company headquarters, and sitting there by yourself, staring at a computer all the time. There were no. other people, human beings around. Yes, yes. Uh, and there's so there's a lot of work that goes into part-time units, like reserve units. Like it's not just the weekend training. There's no. still issues that have to be dealt with constantly, right? Right.
0: Because the you identify that you need new, you know this this stuff ordered. You order it on a drill weekend, but it's going to show up on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So that's why the the full-time guys would then. You know, supply sergeant receives it, puts it where it needs to be. What he did, he had a box. So if your platoon ordered something and it came in, he put it in your box. And when you came in for drill or uh, some of the guys lived close enough that they might stop in a couple days before drill to just clean up things, he hand you the box and you sign for everything in the box, go put it where it needs to be. It worked well.
1: Is I don't know if it's different. So it, – Active duty, if you get a, um, let say you get a DUI, you're a private, mm-hmm. you get a DUI, take in, you get your Article 15, you get busted down. How does it work in the reserves? Like if a guy gets a DUI on his civilian time, do they still get the same sort of punishment that they would get on active?
0: If you're AGR, yes, because you're full-time, even though you're in the reserves. Now, a, a traditional reservist or guardsman, unfortunately, sometimes we would never even find out because of, you know, that John might live four hours away in a different state so it doesn't show up in the local newspaper or whatever that there was a DUI the guy who lived close DUI uh referred up to JAG to find out you know okay what are we doing here but depending on their rank you could still uh, suspend their security clearance which is an, not a punitive action it's okay, you got a DUI so until we get this cleaned up because there is going to be a civilian hearing and civilian punishments we got a
1: know suspend your security clearance or whatever. So not as many article 15s given out in the reserves.
0: Not normally a lot more just non-counselings or whatever. And I know for a fact that some guys skated through the system without because they live so far from the units no one ever found out they got in trouble. Sure
1: sure yeah if you live in West Virginia and you're you drill in Ohio. Yeah. How are you ever going to find out?
0: Right. Unless the guy comes and says, hey, I got a DUI last week.
1: Yeah. <laughs> sure, that was rare. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not the West Virginia guys. <laughs> Maybe. So you did that for a year, AGR?
0: I was AGR for from 98 through 15.
1: Oh, so you were AGR. 16, 17 years. Majority of your career. Yeah. So what was, what was the progression? So you had your company and then... Does the same work, Battalion XO, then Time Commander?
0: No, no. Let's see. Uh, I went Company Command to Company Command. I got board selected for a second Company Command by HRC in Tennessee. Did that for two and a half years. Then I t- went to ROTC, again, a board, board process. Um, what ROTC program? At East Tennessee State University. So that, was, uh, that ended up turning into a five-year assignment because was coming into PCS window. We were in the middle of an adoption, so I asked HRC for a one-year extension. They gave me the one-year extension. And then the next year, they ran out of PCS money, and uh, they told me I had to send in some paperwork requesting to stay. And I called my group commander. Brigade commander was an AGR admin, and I called her. I asked my boss if I could call directly to the group commander. I did not want to get in trouble with the colonel. Sure. Called her, and she's like, no, you shouldn't be volunteering for this. You send me the paperwork, I sent it to her, and she wrote it, did the verbiage for me, and sent it back to me. Said Took all that stuff about volunteering. She changed it over to, um, I will help out the Army, basically, because you guys screwed up your... your, Fucked up the budget. You guys screwed up the budget. I will willingly stay here for a year. And I, I sent it forward, and my guess is that the... Officer up at the top didn't even look at it. He just, okay, got it. You know, 4187, oh, turn and burn.
1: You were a major at the time for that? Or are you still a captain?
0: No, I was a major at the, that time.
1: And when uh, did you make lieutenant colonel?
0: Let's see, just, uh, December 1st of 12.
1: And what was your, were you battalion commander?
0: Did battalion command in rtc which counted because I uh, had another commander just decide to retire.
1: Where was that at?
0: at East Tennessee. Then I went to uh, USARC, the United States Army Reserve Command, on a readiness team. So I was assigned to Coriopolis. Our job was to go and look at uh, reserve units all over the country to determine their readiness and if they were cooking the books, maybe not being as truthful as possible or a lot of times the... When everyone
1: shoots expert at the range, like that's a good indicator. Yeah, that's a good indicator that, that someone's cooking the books. And all the M16s are rusty.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that happened a few times. And then um, from there, I went up to uh, Newcastle into a battalion S3 slot, uh, which would be normal progression. Did that, I made the lieutenant colonel list, was promoted and... and my replacement showed up but my orders had been canceled so they made me a special projects officer for about a year doing investigations on all the bad people in the reserves those duis and the rusty weapons and all that kind of stuff yeah i found all kinds of you know
1: that's not a terribly fun assignment
0: no no because i stayed in newcastle that was the assigned building but i traveled all over did a lot of travel in this region doing reports of survey lost equipment Weapons would show up missing, or parts of a weapon would show up missing. You have to do an investigation. soldier, uh, unfortunately, a soldier died in one of the units in the down trace, so I became the casualty assistance kind of guy for, for a while.
1: That's a rough job.
0: Yeah, that's not a fun job. did casualty assistance for another family up just below Erie, and it, because of the, the situation on the mother and the father who passed away, they weren't married mother refused to tell the five-year-old daughter that her father had passed away but she told the army she had. So when I showed up by myself without the chaplain and so forth, that's when the mom told me. So I had to break the news to a five-year-old little girl that to her.
1: That's horrific.
0: I was like, really lady? You, like, <laughs> So I had to go out and call down to uh, Fort Belvoir
1: to get, you know, how do I handle this? Right. Part? There's not an SOP for that really.
0: Yeah. Because mom had said she had Didn't come bring a chaplain. I hadn't called any of the local um, ministers. A lot of ministers, even if they're not affiliated with the military, for that, they'll make time in their schedule.
1: Because there's the notification aspect, which you you would show up, and it's usually two or three people at the door. And then there's the casualty assistance aspect, where you help the family make the arrangements. You walk through, you get the honor guard, you get all that stuff set up. So you were there thinking, all right, now I'm going to help them plan out the next two weeks.
0: Well, it turned into uh, about 13 and a half months because the lieutenant that passed away was a descendant of Betsy Ross. He was authorized burial at Arlington. There's a process that has to go through, and it took about 10 months for his date to, to, to come through the system.
1: So what did you do? You go back, you, you call, you go get a chaplain, you come back to the house, and I was what do you to say t- to a five-year-old?
0: I just said, you know, your your dad's not going to be coming home anymore and you're not going to be able to go see him. She was supposed to go see him the next day at Fort Benning and he had a massive heart attack on the PT track.
1: What year was this? Probably seven years ago. I remember that. I remember being in when that happened. So, yeah, he had some undiagnosed yeah. heart condition. You just fell over dead. Yeah, I, I remember that distinctly. So... Did she understand what you were trying to tell her? She
0: kind of did. The, um. The family lived out in the, in the country, so they, you know, they had livestock and stuff like that. So I, she understood death. Right. I just said, you're, you're not going to be able to go see your dad. He, he passed away. He had a heart attack. He, he didn't suffer. He wasn't in pain. And then I dealt with the mom. I was like, okay. And you know, mom had to sign everything for the daughter. Mom notified the, her minister that, hey, this happened. So
1: he was coming after me. So you you stayed with the family through the process, through the funeral and everything. She, little girl had been six at that point. Like, how did she handle the funeral and all that?
0: She handled it pretty well. Her her dad had been married had married somebody and had another had another child, um, but it was a very cordial relationship between the the children and the mothers and all the adults involved. So down in Washington, everybody stayed in the same hotel. Every night was kind of a group huddle, like, okay, we're going here tomorrow. This is the funeral home timeline. There's two casualty assistants assigned because uh, Fort Benning had assigned one to the family down there, and then I was working with the two families up here, the mother and then the, the daughter. So it worked out. Me and the, the captain from Fort Benning would get together, do our brain dump. Then when when we talked to the families, we were presenting just one one
1: timeline. We always we traveled as a group. So that was one of your later duty assignments. Yeah, that was close, not a close fun to one. the end.
0: Well, seven years yeah, closer to the end of my my time here in Pennsylvania. Then I just went to Leavenworth to CGSC distance learning for was out there for about fifteen or sixteen months. We just me and my wife decided to retire. It was time to retire. Had the
1: opportunity. Had
0: the twenty years. And, and when you're out in the
1: middle of nowhere, it kind of gives you a little more encouragement. <laughs> I have four
0: children; they were getting older, so it was kind of getting.
1: Mm, so a little moving's bit, a lot.
0: Yeah, it's getting tougher on them because they pick up, move, and in the AGR program, you don't go back to bases. Active duty, you're always almost always going to a base, so you have a chance of running into kids or friends you knew previous assignments. Especially now with Facebook and whatever, the kids, my kids, are still in touch with their her friends from Leavenworth, they're in Germany, Netherlands, Hawaii, and then somewhere in college in New York, uh, New York city and someplace that they're still in touch via Facebook and Skyping and stuff. I'm like, oh, that never happened 10 years ago. You just, right. You, know, you left and you left and that you left. It. That
1: was it. Yeah. All right. So our final question, it's kind of a two parter. One, how old are, how old are your kids now? Uh,
0: right now, I have a 19, 18, 15, 13, and then I have four foster kids that are nine, two three-year-olds, and a six-month-old.
1: Are you encouraging them to join the military, or are you? would you be supportive if they wanted to join the military?
0: I am encouraging them to make their own decisions. My son, my 18-year-old, considered the military, talked to the recruiters, decided it wasn't for him. I'm like, okay. Window, that door is always open until you're 30, 32, yeah. something like that.
1: And then in wartime, they up it again even, yeah. so yeah, you got yeah, plenty of time. Yeah,
0: you, you got plenty of time. One of my sons, he wears bilateral hearing aids, so he can never join the service or be a policeman or anything like that. And then the other one, he 15-year-old. He's a 15-year-old, so. <laughs> Doesn't
1: know what he wants to do yet.
0: <laughs> It'll change five times between now and now. It's done. And then the the yeah. foster kids... The older one realizes what I did prior to them coming into the house. She thinks it's kind of cool, I think, but she doesn't, at nine, she's not really processing that level of stuff.
1: And finally, what kind of advice would you give to young, you know, man or woman that are getting ready to join, getting ready to go in, to the army specifically?
0: Well, if you're going to go in, then you want to make sure that you either enlist for a job that you find interesting and enjoyable, not just something with the biggest bonus. And if you're going for the officer route, decide earlier and let the Army pay for all of your college. Don't do what the enlisted and then do the non-scholarship thing I did. Let the Army pay for it all so you don't have any debt. But the same goes true. Pick a branch that's that you're going to enjoy. New guys that run in the infantry and hate it the woods. Well, why are you in the infantry? Everybody said, you're a guy. You got to be in the infantry. OK, well, you're kind of foolish because I'm driving. And I got a soft ice cream machine in my supply room because right. I'm, I'm the logistics guy. But, but, but you're not infantry. Nope. <laughs> so, you know, pick what you want to do. Pick something enjoyable. Don't just pick it because, you know, five of your friends win in infantry or armor or signal repair. Might not be what you want to do. Pick what you think is going to be fun.
1: Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. It was great having you on. Hey, thanks, Nick. Have a good one. You too. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or your favorite podcasting app.